ironically, right, like, uh, Blue Velvet filmed in Wilmington, right? Uh, Super Mario Brothers also filmed in Wilmington, both yeah. starring Dennis Hopper, because, again, Dennis Hopper fell in love with Wilmington while he was there. You know who I fell in love with when I was in Wilmington? You, Beast. <laughs> Aww. We actually met on, uh, we actually met on Valentine's Day. Oh shit, how romantic. I know, I know. Every Valentine's Day he actually uh, calls to wish me a happy anniversary. Aww. <laughs> we both went to that party looking for love. Little did we know, it would be a bromance. You know, I call him every year and say happy anniversary, uh, but he still never sends me flowers. Uh, nah man, cause you don't put out. <laughs> After all no, these I years. No, I put in. <laughs> Go Team Venture! Gary, nobody cares about the Venture Brothers. People care. Well, just be quiet. All right, fine. People really need to know this stuff. Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another exciting episode of Conjectural Technologies, a Venture Industries podcast. I'm your co-host, Brock Savage. With me, as always, is my longtime companion, Beast Lamode, and we are joined this week by our very special guest, the Vaud villain. How's it going? <laughs> what was so, that? Uh, there was no beast. Beast didn't say anything. I didn't realize I was getting uh, queued up here. Uh, how are we doing, everybody? How's it going? <laughs> we're we're doing well. <laughs> right. So uh, let's go ahead and pick up with our second part of uh, the family that slays together. Uh, last week, we covered the introduction to this week's episode, which was the second part of the introduction, if you count the previous episode, The Orb. And this is, in many ways, the third part of a three-part, two-part ending. Uh -huh. Now, what's happened? <laughs> so, so we open up this week with Doe and Cardholder in the OSI um, helicarrier. What, what's it called, Big Baby? Baby Girl. Baby Girl. Baby Girl. Baby girl. Sorry, I've been watching uh, Toy Story 3 lately. So uh, we, uh, they're in Baby Girl, and uh, they are walking up to General Trace, who is in the middle of his squat thrust. He tells him to hold on so he can get up to 77, one for every year that that old bag of bones has kept going, 77 years old. Uh, and he's like, dude, trying to save off a heart attack, nine if we're counting, and we are. And he's like, <laughs> you here to wrestle me? <laughs> like that's actually how I want to be how I want to introduce myself every time I meet somebody new. It's like, oh hey, this is uh you know, this is Ted from accounting. Are you here to wrestle me? <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and Tracer is one of the, the great side characters of the show. Um Toby Huss, the voice actor, puts a lot into the performance. Uh one of the best special features. Um, I want to say it's on season three or season four, probably season four. It's just a, a role of his like doing different takes for a specific scene. And like, you know, it, it's a solidly hilarious seven minutes. Um, 
And like your love life. <laughs> I, I, I said seven minutes. <laughs> uh, what are we going to do for the other five, Jason? You know I don't like to cuddle. Ah, uh, yes, but you're the biggest spoon of all. So It's called climaxing, okay? <laughs> right. So no, we, uh, Traster is, is like, hang on, I wasn't talking about Traster. I can have man crushes too. Shut your mouth. Just talk about Traster. <laughs> but no, uh, Traster's this great blend of Nick Fury, Teddy Roosevelt, and the eye patch, the the gap in the teeth, and his office. Like, let's talk about his office. Like, it smells of like animal dander and rich mahogany. <laughs> and unsmoked pipe tobacco. Yeah, and maybe like unsmoked pipe tobacco but smoked venison jerky that he made himself. <laughs> Who was the, uh, who's the general from uh, Strange Love? Uh, the general from Strange Love, um, that was uh, another, uh, uh, I actually have this in notes somewhere. <laughs> like he's kind of like, he's kind of got this like General Patton feel, you know, like uh, uh, Buck Turgeson. That's who it is. Yes. And, and like George C. Scott. Yeah. Who didn't he also play Patton? I think so. Yeah. George C. Scott. I'd be wrong about that. I could be getting the the Patton. Yep. There we go. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah so you know you kind of get that same gruffness, right? You know, like imagine. Uh, whereas like uh, General Man Hours is a very dry character. Uh, General Traster is eccentric to say the least. Okay, like, so General Manhours is uh, Buck Turgeson at the beginning of Doctor Strange Love. <laughs> Traster right. is Turgeson at the end of Strange Love. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like he's hiding under his desk. He's like, I'm not drinking the tap water. I'm the one who put the fluoride in it. Right. Okay, so, wait. I've got, I've got a question for you guys because I yeah. know that I, I've got a list here of all the things he has an American flag on in his office. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but I'll go through the list, and then I have a question at the end. So I've got an American flag ceiling, uh, the carpet around the desk. He's got the little, like, flag trim. Um, he's got a normal old-fashioned globe, except for America. It has the American flag as the coloring in for the country. Uh, the armchair is done up. The rug on the floor is done up. Um, is he set up to be the foil to our uh, beloved Hunter Gathers? Is he meant to be how he's always speaking of the man, even though he's on the inside? Is this their, their setup on that? I, I don't you know, know that I can answer that question. Well, I, I really get the impression that the relationship him and Traster have very much is similar to the relationship that Brock and Hunter has. You know what I mean? So... Uh, Brock is to Hunter as Hunter is to Tracer. Okay. Okay. Um, they, and so so it's just a direct like, lineage you know, to father figure. Yeah, like mentor, mentee, like obviously, you know, uh, generations of, you know, uh, espionage here, like, you know, leading a new generation in. Um, but also, I mean, let's be clear, like, uh, as bizarre as he could be about showing it at times, you know, Hunter S. Thompson was a patriot. He loved America. Um, and so, I mean, I, I completely, I love the idea, and you get this visual later again, of essentially Hunter S. Thompson wrestling Teddy Roosevelt in an American flag-themed room. Like, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing. And I, so I don't necessarily see it as like a foil. I mean, okay. I could see them as like uh, two different kinds of patriotic, like, the one thing I've always loved about Traster, and it might be a little nod or maybe I'm looking into it too much, 
but where he has the uh, you know the Iron Man heart <laughs> essentially, yeah. Um, I think that's like you know the same spot where he was shot. Where well, I say where he was shot, where Teddy Roosevelt was shot in the chest at the World's Fair in '38, and kept giving like a two-hour speech after. Yeah, that. dude. What yeah, a I ball. Mean, that guy was like he was the original Old Spice man. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. So we've got them letting Traster know that there's a problem with Agent 9262. None other than our favorite Swedish murder machine, Brock Sampson. And they're letting him know that he has turned OSI's top assassins list into an obituary. obituary an obituary page and they're getting ready to show him hate and he's like don't use that one it's set to record Battlestar Galactica and <laughs> obituary I'm sorry like is this where you complain about dead people right <laughs> I'm sorry and I know you're a huge Battlestar Galactica fan so go on I, I, I am I am uh, I am afraid to delve into that too much uh, suffice to say, Battlestar Galactica was when my wife realized I had a problem. <laughs> Have you seen the uh, Portlandia sketch about watching Battlestar Galactica? No. It's amazing, and this is why I'm uh, very terrified to actually start it. Because uh, you've seen what I've done to Twin Peaks. You've seen <laughs> I, what I'm I, doing to Venture Brothers, you, right? You, you've done a Damien Hurst on Twin Peaks, bro. <laughs> right. So <laughs> the whole sketch is like, you know, it's a couple, and they're like, you know, binge-watching uh, you know, Battlestar Galactica, and then it's like, oh man, I've got you know some responsibilities. I got X, Y, and Z. You know what? You know, just another couple of episodes, <laughs> and they just keep putting off life another couple of episodes <laughs> until like they, the power goes out, and they're like, well, wait, how are we supposed to watch Battlestar? <laughs> they start going to other people's houses and like procrastinating with them. They're like, oh no, no, we'll go to work later. Like. <laughs> I accidentally did the entire series, not the season, the series in six days. All right, so being the resident Battlestar Galactica expert in six days, mind you, um, what episode do you think Tracer's favorite episode of Battlestar Galactica would be? Uh, he and straight up said number six. No, no, that's Trace? the episode he's recording. Yeah. What's his favorite episode? Oh, God. Uh, his favorite episode. I'm going to guess it was not the finale, because I don't know that he'd be a big Jimi Hendrix fan. Or Bob Dylan. Uh, I can tell you who his favorite character is. That's Edward James Olmos. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> they have a very similar fashion sense. They like a good, you know, high and tight collar. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. Uh, I can probably tell you who his least favorite character was, and that would be um, uh, Katie Sackhoff's character. Actually, no. Well, so the reason – well, actually, that's not true. He'd really like her. The reason I was thinking that he might not like her was because she didn't follow orders, but I guarantee he likes that about her. Uh, Mary McDonald's character is probably one that he didn't like so much because she kept trying to do stuff correctly. (laughs) <laughs> well, Katie Sackhoff played Starbuck, right? Yeah. All right, so this is what a little bit I'm, I'm, I'm showing. I know. And if I remember correctly, like, Starbuck is definitely, like, a, a little bit of a rough-and-tumble character. Like, Starbuck would have a tussle with, with Traster in, in the oh, office. Oh, yeah, she'd fight. She'd fight. Yeah, yeah no, and then that would turn awkwardly passionate. Oh, right. <laughs> that is, uh, I, I don't know. I don't, you know who it reminds me a little bit of? Do you remember the gym coach from Beavis and Butthead? Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Kick me in the jimmy! <laughs> right. <laughs> right. 
Yeah, just just a thought. So, what do you think his favorite episode is? Oh, I mean, I don't know. I haven't. I, I'm very like you know topical on this. I I kept, I tried to sit through the opener, and I think I kept getting distracted, so I didn't give it the attention it deserved. And then I heard you talk about binge watching it in six days. I was like, oh. So maybe this is a crack pipe. So do, do you know what happens when you binge watch uh, a series with, like, I forget how many episodes per season and, what, like five seasons, uh, four seasons? Uh, there comes a moment where it's almost like quarantine, where the days blend into each other and the episodes aren't so much episodes as they are one giant episode punctuated every now and then by another intro. <laughs> <laughs> I like a song with a good, hard intro just for that fact, because when you're binge-watching it, at least like breaks up every 20 minutes or 40 minutes or however long the show is. Uh, the Office is a good one for me for that, because it's got that nice, hard-thumping intro, so uh, it at least breaks the time up a little bit. You don't blend it all together after a while. Have you tried to do episodes of the Venture Brothers like that? I've sat down and binge. I sat down and binge the commentaries on the entire first six seasons in probably as many days. Um, that was fun. Uh, I like to go on the Adult Swim app and put on the uh, the Venture Brothers marathon stream sometimes yeah. just to pick up randomly. Uh, if if I'm not doing like any particular research here, just really more tertiary research to kind of support a thing. I mean, uh, you know, we're, one of the things we haven't been really great about in, in this series is because these episodes give you so much as kind of talking about who Brock Sampson is. Yeah. <laughs> and usually that's what I'm watching uh, the, the Adult Swim, sh- like, marathon streams for is, like, tertiary examples to support my point for what I'm doing this episode. Got it. Well, I mean, that's, that, that's a good place to go. Uh, I don't know if you remember, Beast. Do you remember that flowered couch that we used to have in uh, – Dr. Mrs. My Wife's apartment. Yeah. Yeah, that thing was so wide. It was the widest couch I'd ever been on. It was so comfy to sleep on. And I would just cruise into my office and just sit down and throw up Venture Brothers episodes. I mean, this is what, 2009? Uh, So, you know, I had several seasons to work with, and that was back when I was still using Winamp. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, doing some some torrent downloading. Yeah, it would just it, it would just play. It would just play, uh, and it was fantastic. And it, it got to the point, like you know, there were certain episodes that were soothing. Like you had certain episodes for certain things. Like you had, you know, if you only had thirty minutes, you'd watch this episode, or an hour, you'd watch that episode, or if you had enough time, you could just put it on and let it roll while other stuff was going on because you knew that block was going to be amazing. Uh, I hope that is how people feel about our block. So uh, before we loop back into the, the, the proper episode here, one of my favorite things about the commentary for the new season, they start off uh, because they start recording the commentary uh, apparently like the, the day after, in this particular instance, the day after the last episode aired. Oh. Um, so the DVD hadn't come out yet. So they actually went to Ken Plume, who had bootlegged the video. (laughs) When they're doing commentary, they're doing it from bootleg. Oh, wow. Uh, I cannot wait till we get the chance to talk to Ken. That's going to be really, really exciting. I hope hope that he he picks up his phone. I hope that he tunes in to our podcast and decides, you know what? These guys are onto something here. I should talk to them. So if you know Ken Plume, you should let him know that we would love to talk with him. So let's go ahead and pick back up with the episode. And we've got them explaining who he's killed, who Samson has killed, 
and how they know they're dead. Uh, they get to uh, they get to uh, hair trigger, and uh, they're like, oh yeah, you know, they they found his body outside a strip club, still looking for the head. Um, they're looking, you know, they found. I'm oh, sorry, no, uh, they found him outside of the strip club. Apparently, he was a bad tipper. Uh, they found Sturgeon, uh, go fish. You know, they're just still looking for his head. And uh, when it comes to Latour, he's not answering his cell phone. If you knew the guy, you'd understand. (laughs) (laughs) So, and then he's like, oh, no, that's too much public killing. Bring in the A squad. Daddy's going to sit in the big chair. We got to end this Samson problem, making it very clear to us that he's going to end Brock Samson and end the Samson problem. This is where we get introduced to where Doc and Brock are and where the boys are. We ended the last episode with the police bursting in and finding an absolute bloodbath. Brock covered in blood, the boys covered in blood, the hotel room covered in blood, a body in the bathroom, Doc's vomit around. Doc, luckily not covered in blood because he was in the bath the whole. So we've got Doc and Brock in jail getting slapped around. Um, we spoke a little earlier about uh, police violence. This is using police violence in a very humorous context. Uh, I wonder how this is going to aid. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I mean, um, you know, and also, like, uh, it very much speaks to the culture of, like, you know, this is a trope. Like, Venture Brother, like, trades in, 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 you know, stereotypes and tropes and things established by generations of other storytellers, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so, yeah, this is very much a, an interesting, you know, kind of hallmark of the zeitgeist thing that, uh, you know, it's going to see how things are, are different moving forward into those, uh, you know, interrogation room scenes. Um, I'm a big fan of Brooklyn Nine-Nine, mm-hmm. and they really play with the interrogation room scene format on, like, the, the cop show. Uh, like it's, it's really funny and hilarious. And obviously because, you know, it's told from, or, you know, about the, the perspective of, you know, the police squad, you know, it's very, you know, humane, uh, and and pro police that way. Um, but yeah, no, it's, uh, it's an interesting kind of set of, 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 uh, things because crime as a genre has always been one of our fascinations. And again, like, you know, going back to, uh, you know, their names, right. So, they're detective heat and collar because okay. like, you know, it's like, are, you know, who's going to get the heat? Who's going to get the collar? Right. Like, yeah. They are um, very clearly, uh, stereotypical, a seventies beat cops, typical seventies detectives. Uh, that is if anything, an ode to movies like Serpico, uh, you know, where you've got these characters who are, or like the, uh, the uh, oh, God bless, like Starsky and Hutch, you know? Cagney <laughs> and Lacey. <laughs> yeah, right. Cagney and Lacey. Well, they're in there beating them around, slapping them around, and uh, Samson, of course, is never going to talk. And he says, you'll never get us to talk. And then Doc's like, I'm not really with him. <laughs> Which, <laughs> I think tells you a whole lot about Doc's priorities at this point. Um, Doc is uh, an idiot, and I mean that in the most original sense of the word that I can. Um, Doc, the the word idiot is originally from the Greek word uh, idio, meaning self, right? It's where we get words like idiomatic or idiom. So if you've ever watched uh, Monty Python's Search for the Holy Grail, you know, it's like, oh, yes, I don't know that it would fit with my idiom, you know? Like, I don't know if it fits in something I would do. So the, uh, the reason idiot is a put-down, is the reason it's pejorative, is because to the ancient Greeks, someone who wasn't um, participating 
in the life of the polis, someone who was participating in the life of the city, was somebody who was doing it wrong. Like if you were only looking out for yourself and not looking out for your neighbors, you were bad. You know, like one of their great insults, and, uh, you know, pardon my Greek here, is malaka, right? Which is someone uh, who essentially sits around um, pleasuring themselves all day instead of participating in civic life, all right? So, like, essentially giving yourself a rusty venture. So, if you, you know, that's why that's so bad. So, an idiot. I heard you had to have, like, two ribs removed in order to get yourself a rusty Marilyn Manson, just next time, Gadget, next time. So, uh, what happens is an idiot is someone who stupidly only looks out for themselves. And we see Doc being an idiot here, right? He is clearly interested in his own self-interest, uh, you know, Gordon Gecko would love him. And his rational self-interest pretty much involves throwing his friend and bodyguard under the bus. And, of course, that's when we get uh, another introduction of the name Tralfaz. <laughs> uh, I, I love the identity Jesus Tralfaz. I love right. that the name essentially, you know, means, you know, Jesus, good neighbor. Yeah, um, right. What is that, yeah. Polish? No, it's, I think it's Spanish. <laughs> Hang on, my wife's got, my wife speaks a little Spanish. What is this? Bad cop, retarded cop routine? <laughs> you know, bust out with another one of the no-no words. And then we bounce over to the boys who are with the psychiatrist. And I loved this interaction. Uh, we've got Dean and his mouth's all red. You know, of course, you know, Doc and Brock are being slapped around. So your initial instinct oh, hang is on. to think, uh-oh. Before we get to the the cutting to the boys, uh, you know, going to the, the psych, you know, talking to the psych, which is, is an amazing kind of... Uh, miscommunication comedy um you get a wonderful scene um where uh the monarch is essentially about to uh you know torture helper for information <laughs> and so he's getting uh 24 and 21 um, i think that's actually afterwards no yeah you're right it's uh it's after so hold on one for... second hold on one second um so we've got the boys in the interrogation room they're being interrogated by the doctor it looks like dean has been roughed up his mouth is covered in blood and you're like oh no you know they're getting beat up just like uh brock and doc are and then it pans back and dean's mouth is red because he has a giant bowl of twizzlers in front of him <laughs> okay <laughs> and the boys are you know, it's like, okay, you know, you're going to, you know, why are we under arrest? And it's like, boys, you're not arrest, okay? He thinks the boys are clearly crazy, and he's trying to get their story straight. He's like, this Brock person, does he speak to you? Because, again, they haven't, you know, they don't have a Brock in custody. They have Jesus Tralfat. Yeah, and, so, and the boys haven't been introduced to Jesus. Yeah, so uh, Brock, you know, does Brock speak to you? Yeah. Does he tell you what to do? Sometimes, <laughs> okay? And this robot friend, Helper, does he speak to you too? Which, of course, you know, if, if these were real characters sitting in a room with a psychiatrist, you know, a child development psychiatrist, you would think they were pretty crazy too. But in the Venture Brothers universe, super science is part of the game. It's a game that this psychiatrist is clearly not introduced. Well, and uh, it's one of those weird things where it's like, is this a continuity error or is this person just kind of lacking that way in life? Because, all right, like later on, um, Hank and Dermot and Helper get locked up uh, in an episode. And, like, the cops totally, like, the local cops totally go through, like, a guild protocol, like, registry protocol. Like, uh, Dermot was calling himself Flying Sidekick. 
So they put a, like a, a weight on his ankle just in case he could fly. <laughs> you know, so it's like on some level the, the, the cops understand this world, whereas like, you know, maybe some of the, the other folks don't. Like, uh, again, you know, this just looks like a grisly murder scene to somebody that they don't might not know. Um, and also, uh, they do, it, it is an intercut. Um, so the first scene with the, the, the uh, essentially like torture of Helper is where the monarch knocks his head off by accident. Yeah, so the helper's in the chair. He's being interrogated. Yeah, and then uh, according to the breakdown I'm looking at, and then that's when it cuts back to the the thing with uh, Venture that... getting slapped, and then Hank and uh, you know talking about like you know my family's on the run. Uh, yeah, the that, that 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 happens later. Am I too far down? You are way too far. Down. Yeah. This is All why right. I don't drive very often. <laughs> right. Because I am drunk so... all the time. Right. Let's. I mean, so is it drunk got, if it's Robotussin? Right. Uh, we've got Helper in the chair, and of course, the interrogation scenes are mirrored. We've got Doc and Brock being interrogated, the boys being interrogated, and Helpers being interrogated by the Monarch 21 and 24, and they're asking, "Where is Venture?" Of course, when Helper answers, they can't understand. So the Monarch's like, "Did he tell us?" And it's like, "Well, it seemed like he was being sarcastic." Yeah, it's the upward inflection. Right. And it's weird. Again, this is kind of one of those like vague continuity things. Who does and doesn't understand Helper? Uh, Um, Because again, apparently they don't. Yeah, like in this moment they don't. But later on, again, we'll see that somebody might, like somebody kind of does, um, you know, as that, that kind of cuts back, right? I kind of looked at it as like an R2 thing, right? Like, because when R2 talks, like Luke obviously can get, can see the translation, but, you know, you get the impression that there are some people who do understand what the little beeps and whistles are. And well, who was it? Uh, Bill Hader, who does the voice for BB-8. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. So, like, there is, you know, th- there's definitely... I, I think Poe understands Beach without was needing Alan to use a translator. Book that day, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> um, what man? What? What's wrong with Bill? Why you got to be a hater? No, Bill, <laughs> Bill Hader's amazing. Uh, first off, he taking over uh, from Stephen Colbert's, uh, you know, Doctor Impossible. He p- does a great job picking that up. And uh, if you haven't seen Barry on HBO, oh, take excellent. a minute and have like this weirdly awkward depressing laugh. <laughs> There's an episode in season two of that show that is about the most insane 20 whatever minutes of the, the episodes are. It just starts with the attempted hit and runs through it in basically real time. And it's one of the most insane 20 minutes of television I've ever seen. Um, yeah, I recommend that show. Definitely. There are some yeah, shows I can't shocked. watch. There are some yeah. shows I can't watch. Like, I can't handle shows that are awkward. Uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm, everybody speaks so highly of that show, I cannot watch it. Um, and this is how you know my kids are mine, uh, because Ha One um, will be sitting there watching a movie, and, you know, my wife and the other Ha's will be sitting on one couch, I'm sitting in my chair, maybe he's sitting on the floor, and an awkward part comes on, and we both start, like, clinching up. (laughs) 
like, my wife has literally moved movies past those parts. Because <laughs> like, we just clenched. Like, oh, you know, oh, man. Something. Like, I, I live for those, like, cringe-worthy moments sometimes. Like, dude, that's why I went through Tiger King. Like, <laughs> so you're, you're saying I shouldn't watch Tiger King. I, dude, you couldn't handle Tiger King. Like, you would be curled up in a fetal position involuntarily just cringing like like you're having a grand mal seizure just Ugh. begging for the the, the screen because you watch it on a projector so it's like you know stanley kubrick style inundation <laughs> um, all right thank you for letting me know and knowing is half the battle. So we get this simultaneous interrogation of Helper by 21, 24, and the Monarch. And, he, of course, they're demanding to tell him something or we break something. And then 21 hits Helper with the butt of his rifle and accidentally knocks his head off. And he's about point, he's like, sorry. And the Monarch's like, don't apologize. Now he knows we mean business. <laughs> right? That is lemonade out of a lemon. Tell us where he is or we knock off your head again. Intentionally. <laughs> <laughs> And then we bounce back to the interrogation with Brock and Doc. And it's like, who's this Latour? And he's like, uh, yeah, it was just, he was split straight up the Garanimals. He's like, never heard of him. <laughs> Good luck picking up that spare. And, of course, we get this very, uh, like, we actually get, this is where we get my, wor my favorite word of the episode. It's like, you don't get it? Uh, I don't get it. That's downright esoteric. And of course, Brock says, I got it immediately and gets punched for it. And then Doc, Doc asks, do we get socked on the lips every time we talk or only when we make a point? Slap. <laughs> <laughs> I love then the way we, that it doesn't really resolve the answer. No. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's when we go back to the boys. And this is where Hank gets his moment to shine. We've heard Brock saying he won't tell them anything. And then Hank's like, okay, I'll tell you everything. Can I get one of those? Pointing at the cigarettes. And he's like, no. So then he picks up the Twizzler and sticks it in his mouth. And you see the doc just write oral fixation. <laughs> so I actually wanted to pause just a moment and reflect on this for a second. Uh, the oral fixation, of course, is a Freudian concept. Um, and that it you know, human development takes place in several stages, right? The anal stage, the oral stage, the genital stage. And we get uh, problems unresolved from that time period manifest themselves in later life. And uh, some of the things that are indicative of uh, an oral fixation, right, uh, or failures to resolve problems at that stage include overeating, talking too much, smoking, drinking, and a sarcastic or biting personality. Other than the overeating, that's Hank. Listen, first off, I didn't come here to be attacked. I didn't <laughs> record a podcast. Right. <laughs> Should we talk about your issues, Beast? I don't so, have mom issues, all right? My cookie jar is an upside-down wow, okay? That's just... <laughs> right. So, we... okay, real quick. I, I don't know that he got that. I got it, though. Oh, sorry. Uh, no, I was just trying to find it right here. I've just had the list of what else he had on that uh, little pad he had. Yeah. Uh, has both Venture, Hank, and Dean, so I don't know who he's talking about. Uh, maybe we can try and figure out who's who here. Uh, paranoid Delusions. i got to go with that to Hank since he's uh, spouting everything off. Arrested Development. Both. <laughs> Oh. Uh, and then I've got Crybaby, and then the last one was Oral Fixation. Uh, Crybaby is definitely Dean. Yeah, I'm going to go with Dean on that one. Well, also, I love that, like, you know, the professional, like, diagnosis here is Crybaby. <laughs> like, we're going to go 
to the physician's desk reference and <laughs> yeah. like crybaby. Yeah. The DSM five is very clearly stating here that crybaby is a whiny little biatch. <laughs> So one of the cool things about this is that Hank goes through and tells the truth. He literally breaks down the entire preceding episode. And then the doctor's like, okay, that's really interesting. He just, he's dismissing it. He's like, tell me again about the giant butterfly. And then the boy's like, fine, <laughs> give me my phone call. And he's like, okay, fine. And instead of getting up to use the phone, he just pops over onto his wrist communicator. <laughs> he's like, dad, 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 this guy's a tool. <laughs> okay, so I got I to gotta make a note from this. So uh, what was the air date on this episode? We had it at the top. It was 2008? Yeah. Okay, so from this date in 2008, I have refused to buy a smartwatch because it cannot do video calling. I've never seen a video watch that had a good setup on that, and because Venture Brothers showed me how awesome it would be to just look at my wrist real quick and get a video chat going with somebody, I refuse to buy from Apple. So I don't know if there's like actionable lawsuit they can do for damages done to their uh, future profits, but uh, Venture Brothers ruined me until they can give me the video watch. I, I, I get that. I get that. You know what my biggest fear with a video watch is? It's kind of the same fear that I have with uh, smartphones in general because I have accidentally dialed... Off. What's that? Leaving it on while you jerk off? Uh, well, it is. Uh, I have been. <laughs> man, you got to understand. Uh, <laughs> there are so many things I don't want to subject other people to. Like, well, you gotta think they wouldn't see that. Like, if you were doing like you know uh, uh, a little video call on your wrist. They're just getting motion sickness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no, and what, hearing what? like stirring macaroni noises. <laughs> it's like an Andy Warhol movie. <laughs> right. They, uh, they definitely get, although Dick Tracy is the one who had this to begin with, right? The risk communicator. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, I want to say, and, and it's been a while since I've watched Johnny Quest proper, but they had a, a risk communication system that I think was actually video. Um, I desperately want one of those replica uh, Venture Brother risk communicators in my own life. Like, I desperately want that. Uh, man, I, I've gone around, like, hunting because it, it was a part, like, they only manufactured them for press kit. Um, so, like, the, the prices range on them pretty, pretty crazily. But you can't even find them on eBay. Like, you've got to go to, like, even more specific, like, collector sites um, in order to, to find that particular item. Uh but it does exist, and it looks great. Um, it's one of those things, like, we live in a world now where, and I don't play Fallout. Um, was it Fallout, or was it one of the other ones that had, like, the huge wrist communicator that, like, you could put your phone in? Um, like, this huge, like, wrist piece for a game. Uh, like a bracer? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, like, you know, th they can have fun with it. And one of the things we actually don't talk about, even though we reference the, the commentary a lot, how much fun, like, the DVD menus are, like, in the DVD themes. <laughs> and, I mean, sure, if we don't get, like, video commentary, like, video content, like, you know, if you can't do video communication on the, the Venture Brothers watch, there would uh, there's a million ways to make that fun still, you right. know? I would totally would love to have a Venture Brothers themed like Fitbit. Like me and Sergeant <laughs> Nathan, like take power walks together. Like Right. Turn left. Oh, okay. 
uh, then question, if you had to pick uh, one venture voice to be your Siri on your phone, whose voice would you want that to be? Dr. Mrs. the Monarch. Nice. Yeah. Beast? Uh, okay. For me, it, it, it's a little torn between Dr. Mrs. the Monarch. Surely. And yeah, I was going to say in Surely, just because I think sassy commentary. The one I would buy for somebody as like a gag gift, though, would be like Augustus St. Cloud. <laughs> uh, you know what also would be funny? Helper. I would take uh, the helper too, the nice uh, kind of British robot sounding guy as your uh, little assistant in your pocket. I take that. Oh, one other thing I kind of thought about was uh, that's what uh, that was. Who? Uh, Reese Darby that played uh, Helper Two. Got it. Oh, nice. Got it. Um, so we've got uh, Doc, of course, talking to the boys, and uh, the guys, the the officer sees what's going on, and of course slaps him, grabs his hands, and uh, it's like, oh, I've got delicate joints. And then there's a knock on the door, and then who appears? But what could be some alternate universe version of Shore Leave and Mile High? Like, did you did, did you get that same vibe off of the two uh, the two agents who appeared at the door? I didn't well, catch that. They're they're like uh, they're supposed to be like SWAT agents, and I totally like in my mind. I picked that up as the SWAT TV show. Yeah. Like Hondo and uh, the other guy. I forget the other guy's name. Yeah. Because uh, he wasn't as cool. It was like Rocket <laughs> and uh, Tubbs. Rocket and Tubbs. Okay, yeah, there you go. <laughs> I'm from Miami Vice. Yeah, well, and of course, you know, they're sitting there. It's like, you know, it's like, all right, these guys are free to go. Free to go? You know, uh, the officers are completely flummoxed. And, of course, the agents are saying, no body, no case. It's like, what the hell? It looked like this. It looked like they set a saw one in there. <laughs> <laughs> like, nope, the room was Martha Stewart. Couldn't find anything except a faint, lemony scent. I can still smell it now. And that's when our deus ex machina comes in. It is. It, it comes in initially as a spray bottle that appears next to the agent's face and then starts spraying a bunch of melted face. Uh, we get the cleaner who look like Mr. Clean. And I can only assume that he's got cleaning bottles full of acid. Uh, and by acid, I mean melted face. Who starts you would taking think so, everyone but out. Actually, uh, it, it's, it's a tiny little Ark of the Covenant. <laughs> right. <laughs> that explains that faint lemony scent. Oh, that's that cedarwood? <laughs> the faint lemony scent is, is the smell of uh, Yahweh. Like. <laughs> right. Uh, I imagine, you know, it's certainly better than sulfur from other, uh, from Bale. Uh, so we get, uh, we get these guys, we get all the officers taken out by Mr. Clean. The, I'm sorry, the cleaner. And, uh, you know, the doc and Brock are, you know, have their uh, cuffs melted away. And then we get back to our interrogation of Helper. And he's got electrodes attached. And they well, are hey, getting hey, ready. Hang on a second. Like, we got to go back to the cleaner. Because right, this is me. one of those beautiful conceptual amalgamations that Venture Brother loves to do. So they, like, on the commentary, they talk, we're talking about, like, uh, they wanted, like, you know, uh, a character like the wolf. From yeah, from Wolf Fiction. Yeah, but, like, you know, he's a, he's, a, he's a cleaner, so now he looks like Mr. Clean, mm-hmm. right? And, and, you know, just kind of the, you know, direct association, um, you know, it, it's almost what gives it that, that tick element to it. it's like all right so i want this kind of character what does this guy do he does this like (laughs) and so like you know if he's a cleaner oh mr clean um and i love the voice that they got for him too yeah um yeah i think that he doesn't say anything uh just right now like he just kind of 
gives the uh, like smile and the the tooth grin. <laughs> yeah, right. The the the, the pe- peppermint fresh tooth grin. <laughs> you know his breath is always mint. Well, the other one I had was um, he shows up and Brock asks, "You're the cleaner," and it's a question. So clearly, Brock's never actually met this guy, but the phone number's in his phone. Yeah. So does Brock just have like a full number set of OSI numbers to call in a situation, but then why? Yeah, I remember Hunter gave it. So and so he's another off res. Uh, yeah. Oh, back OSI. Oh, okay, I didn't pick that up the first time through. That never. Okay. Okay. Well, I mean, it's even like Pulp Fiction where, like, uh, you know, Jules and uh, Vincent know who the wolf is by reputation, but have never actually worked with him uh, yeah. up until um, nice. uh, What's-His-Face's house, like Tarantino's cameo. Um, yeah, yeah. Jimmy, that long-ass cameo. What is it? Yeah. Blue marble uh, all over the back of the car? I, I, oh, can only assume, I can only assume it's like, as you know, Phil Lamar has this amazing backstory. <laughs> okay, hang on. So I want to talk about as you know for a second. <laughs> so I'm watching, uh, was it Space Force? And in the pilot episode, like the first episode of Space Force, um, which I think is hilarious, like a lot of the critics panned it for not being as office as the office said it was her new favorite show like i caught her watching several episodes today she's like this is amazing oh, sorry. It, 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 uh hang on hang on uh you have to bleep that oh yeah Hi, uh, time code ah ha, ha, ha. time you messed up that's funny <laughs> and, yeah that's uh that's that dr mrs the monarch's fate or doc Dr. Mrs. Brock Savage's uh, favorite show. I caught her watching several episodes today. They're fictional swingers. They swing with fictional characters. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but yeah, so Space Force. The, uh, you know, it goes through like, you know, he thinks he's, he gets this promotion to four-star general. He thinks he's about to run the Air Force. And then it cuts to like a year later. And his wife's in prison. And then uh, like he cuts like later on. It almost immediately afterward, he's on the phone with somebody. He's like, well, as you know, my wife's in prison. But they referenced it just immediately before, so we did know. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it would. it is not hard to make it to make an as you know stick it literally takes a moment of fill to make it work if I only mean, as you know that that can be a very difficult process <laughs> especially when you only have five hours of movie in advance right <laughs> mm. so we've got them interrogating helper they've got him attached to some electrodes but uh bad things are about to happen and then dr mrs the monarch comes in and she is just Oh, sweet thing. Did the bad man hurt you? Let's get you back to your family. Uh, you know, Monarch, this is against the guild sentience clause. You know, and just get, just break it all down. Monarch, how dare you? Let's get Helper back to his family. And, of course, you know, tell us where they are, sweetie. We'll get you back to them. And wait, 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 wait. I, I need you to deliver some more lines with your Dr. <laughs> Mrs. Monarch. <laughs> Like that—that that was wonderful. It, it almost sounds a little bit like uh, one of the the ladies on Coffee Talk. <laughs> <laughs> Coffee Talk. Coffee Talk. <laughs> Today our guest host is Sheila. <laughs> Sheila, what do you do for a living? Oh, you're a villainous. Interesting. <laughs> a woman owning her own business. I'm for Klimt. <laughs> I wonder if she also does drawing. So, so we, we man, this. So we've got.
got uh, Sheila, who has come in and told Helper that she's going to get him someplace safe. Monarch has broken the rules again, and she manages to get Helper to give her the location, a GPS coordinates, at which point she pulls the tape that he has printed out of his chest, uh, laps his face away, hands it, to, hands it to the monarch, and says, all right, pump this in. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, one more time. What did she say? <laughs> From the top. I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm dying. I'm trying, but I'm dying. Um, um, sorry, let me uh, let me smoke a pack of cigarettes and drink this coffee real fast. Um, like, now pop this into the damn computer. It's coordinate. So, <laughs> so uh, that is, of course, exactly what the monarch wanted to hear but didn't know it. He was like, oh, God. Your bad cop is amazing. And, of course, before it's like, hot, hot, hot cop. And I couldn't help but think hot dolphin cop. <laughs> hot cop, hot cop. And I love this scene. Uh, I'm not going to lie. My favorite moments with Dr. Mrs. the Monarch is when you get to see her be exactly as savage as... You know you she know. is. Yeah, like, again, they make a lot of very severe things mundane and funny. And that's a part of the humor. But then you have these little glimpses where you're like, Sheila will fucking kill a dude. Yeah. <laughs> it's really funny that you say that because, honestly, I've got it as a note here from the commentaries during this scene that they were worried people were going to get mad because I guess every time previously that they'd ever shown the monarchs being genuinely fucking evil, people, people got mad. And they were like, these people are villains. We have to show them being villains because that's what they are. So yeah. apparently you're shooting right down the alley for uh, what they wanted. Um, this is, they were like, no, we had to make a stand with it and show you just how evil these people were. N nice to see that it was received well, at least. Those are my favorite moments because that's when you get to see them be simultaneously the best and worst versions of themselves, right? Like when uh, Monarch leads the uh, really awesome raid, but then come to find out it's a, his accountant's yeah. office. Oh, dude, and he's like, you know, yeah. Post the minty fresh, you know, Winamp file. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's some horribly dated file name. Quick time file, that's what it was, yeah. Um, you know, you, you get those, like, you know, great epic moments, and you have to have those moments of, of real yeah. villainy to pop up. You get some really unsettling stuff, but it's also darkly funny like when he finally like goes off the hinge and you know just uh you know gives it dr dugong because he's not rusty venture like he starts yeah. unloading his and again you know he, he's about to kill this man you know or or you know spoiler so we think right but he's unloading all of his dr venture baggage on him and that's hilarious it's also really scary in the sense that like imagine being on the receiving end of someone who is furious just not at you and yet you're the one they're holding the gun to the head of like that yeah i think he even like dr dugong even says like wait i didn't do what <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Are you sure you got the right house? Well, and and by the same token, it's interesting how people very much are, you know, uh, again, can kind of be sensitive to villains being actual villains. But like, if Brock doesn't murder a person for like an episode, everybody's like, the hell is going on here? Yeah, right. Oh, <laughs> man. What, what what's gonna happen when Brock decides, like, when they actually do an, ep an episode with Brock taking like time off? 
like an entire episode of Brock just working in his garden, like people's heads would explode. <laughs> I would love to see Brock just kind of moseying. Well, the compound's not there anymore. Like that yeah. would have been great just see him moseying around the compound, going to Hank Co., picking up some batteries <laughs> for his like Walkman. <laughs> like, right. So we bounce over to the family who is now outside of, or I'm sorry, they're at an underpass over what I can only assume is the LA river. Right. Yeah. Um, they, uh, and by LA, for those of you who don't know, the LA river is not really a river. Most of the time it's a trickle. Uh, they do get some water down there. So the entire thing is essentially just an in-ground sluice that, you know, it's got concrete walls. If you've ever seen the movie Terminator 2, it's the thing that he jumps the motorcycle into, and that's the L.A. River. Like, that it's little the trickle. the they race in in Greece. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's that little hey, trickle way, uh, of sewage. Uh, Dr. Savage has his word of the episode for Venture Brothers. I'm going meta, and I'm having a word of the episode for our episode. And that word is sluice. <laughs> <Right. laughs> so the cleaner is there, and he's telling Samson what's up. He's like, "Look, the keys and new ID are in a blood in the glove box, Coachy." And of course, <laughs> no, no, uh, come on, like you'll whip out a doctor business. Come on, keys are in the glove box, there, Coachies. Like <laughs> <laughs> keys are in the glove box, there, Coachies. Yeah, I don't even know what voice they're trying to do there, but it is great. <laughs> That is that is a great voice to have on your GPS. But turn left there, Chief. It's kind of a Jonas venture in its own little way. Yeah, I wonder. Uh, like I'll have it's to. Like a, at... It's like a suave, cool, hip Jonas venture. Like, and I don't mean like if Jonas venture was hip for the '60s. This is like Jonas venture, straight edge, like mid '90s rape. I want this voice doing my learning bed voiceovers for the videos when it's teaching me at night. Like that is a nice, happy. I want to learn from that boy. So I've, I've set up a learning bed at home. <laughs> My smart TV plays Audible, and I've recently become addicted to, to Audible. Please give us money. I will talk favorably about it to no end. Um, but one of the things they have is, uh, like, celebrities or famous people, like, with soothing voices, reading really mundane lessons about things. <laughs> like, Tony Shalhoub does the history of mathematics. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know that there was uh, IKEA put out a podcast, and the IKEA podcast is uh, them reading the IKEA catalog? So you know how to pronounce the names? <laughs> yeah, but it's like Hofnerfjurgen, desk with two shelves, Fugenjugen, <laughs> like lampstand. You know, like it's 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 yeah, if you need help going to sleep, don't worry, they got you. So uh, I am Jack's cure to insomnia. Right. So. <laughs> <laughs> Samson has a problem, and he lets the cleaner know exactly what the problem is. He says, in fact, there's only one problem. Hank didn't call you, and then spins him around and puts a knife to his throat. But that's when we get one of our big reveals, because a voice speaks up from the side, I did. And it is Molotov Cocktee, and she is sitting on the hood of her red sports car in, like, 90s, 2000s club gear uh, with, like, shades and gold piping on her, like, uh, halter top tracksuit, and, like, all blinged out. Um, and I, I just wanted to make special note that she was, in fact, sitting on the hood, okay? Um, you know, and, of course, Brock <laughs> is intrigued. He's like, oh, discreet. I like the get-up. It's a good disguise. And she says, what disguise? I'm off duty. It's like her feelings are hurt. <laughs> and I love, like, 
uh, a little, like, uh, a few seconds down the road there, like, uh, Hank is, like, you know, immediately kind of addresses the situation in, in like, the most Hankish way possible. <laughs> right. Like, why is Brock talking to that hood rat? He can get any shorty you want. Yeah, pretty much. And of course, uh, you know, Brock is wildly unimpressed. He's like, that's what you wear when you're not catwomaning around? I may have to rethink our relationship. Um, and of course, Hank wants to know who the hood rat is. But uh, this happy reunion is broken up when the monarch, using the data they got from Helper, shows up. Now, he doesn't know where they are. He's just got a rough GPS location. He's got like a nav point. So they've got their searchlight going. Uh, you know, Brock's like, all right, let's get out of here. And he turns around, but Maul and the cleaner are already taking off. So the boys and the family run to go hide under the underpass. Um, of course, the searchlight's going, and the searchlight actually hits them, but are they not looking at their searchlight? Like, how do they not see them? You know I don't what? Think Knowing the monarch, that's not even a searchlight. That's just a moving <laughs> head fixture light. Like, just like, you know, uh, like one of those... Uh, Show they you know, had a sale! Yeah, it's like an AccuSpot, like just, you yeah. know, preset, like, floating around. And uh, he's taunting them the whole time, right? He's like, now, you know... Now, wherever you are! Yeah, and Dr. Mrs. the monarch's like, really? He's like, yeah, I know it's a little... But it sounds more terrifying coming out of the PA. Sounds extra creepy over the PA. So, See, And to me, this would have been a perfect uh, place for the Warriors reference. Ventures, come out and play! Well, that that's a different movie. That's the movie. The Warriors we were talking about earlier was the song. Yeah, no, I, but I'm saying, like, this moment would have been oh, a great that, Warriors Oh, reference. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, although, like, do you, like, have they dropped that before? Not that I can remember. I feel um, like it should have been done already. I want to say that, that it does pop up at least once or twice, especially once they get to New York. Uh, yeah. So maybe There's... six or seven. Um, but no, I, I totally, I, okay, uh, calling all fan artists out there, I want the Warriors poster, but like Venture <laughs> characters. <laughs> Dude, like, I mean, I can totally see Hank bare-chested in, like, the Warriors vest in, like, the 70s jeans and high tops. Like, you know, the uh, the one guy kind of had, like, you know, the, the short, like, shoulder bob. Then there was, like, you know, uh, one of the other guys, like, had a, had a fro. Like, yeah, I mean, there's a whole clan there. So, I mean, you could go ahead and pull in all the Venture-adjacent crew and put them in speed suits and then have, like, Monarch crew. Because, like, talk about a movie that's about arching ahead of its time. And <laughs> Greek myths. Like. Absolutely. There is one guy in the Warriors, and I cannot remember what actor it was, but, like, he's the guy who's got the, like, Luke Skywalker haircut. Swan. Yeah. Swan. Yeah. Yeah. As soon as we started talking about the Warriors, his head just popped into my brain, and I was like, that hair, his hair didn't match anyone else's in the entire movie. Everyone else was 70s out. Granted, the Luke Skywalker look, but it didn't really fit with the entire rest of what was going on. Yeah. Uh, he stuck out like a sore thumb in that movie. He was good in it, but yeah, he sticks out. It's he, a whole he went on a bunch of stuff. I can't remember his name, though, for the life of me right now. Well, it's luckily we don't need to because no. I'm sure one of our listeners is going to let us know in the comments. But uh, that's when we get Monarch calling Doc on his wrist con. He's like, oh, you know, he called you on your private number. Uh, so they're torturing Helper. It's set up to look like, uh, you know, kind of those pictures from like Abu Ghraib or like, you know, like there's this is a timely reference. Um, you know, they're torturing Helper. 
21's in a black mask on top of his monarch mask. <laughs> like, he's wearing a mask over his mask. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's kind of like True Lies, you know, where yeah. you've got, like, <laughs> you've got that going there. And, of course, in the middle of the monarch threatening Dr. Venture, 24, 24 is like, oh, cool, I can turn on the night vision. And, of course, you see Monarch wearing his Tiger Speedos and 21 wearing Tidy Whities. Oh, sorry, 21 says it. Uh, you know, 21 turns on the night vision. Monarch's wearing his uh, Tiger Spandex bikini, mankini bottoms. <laughs> well, and I think those are the same ones he's wearing. Yeah, we see him and, again. Well, like, I would say, like, we saw him before, uh, like, when him and, him and Sheila were broken up, and he has the prostitute go through the cocoon. And he has a big red dragon tattoo on his back. <laughs> that was actually the episode they caught a lot of heat for when they found out that the fans didn't like the monarchs being uh, evil and such. Apparently, they got a lot of fan hate for that one. I thought it was actually one of my favorite monarch episodes. But Oh, absolutely. Uh, oh, because yeah. Like, because, I mean, the whole punchline was just brilliant. Like, she survives the gauntlet and is traumatized and then see two, sees two guys in butterfly suits. <laughs> Uh, so we see, of course, at this moment, when things don't seem like they can get any worse, they get worse because General Tracer contacts Brock and Brock gets a brilliant idea. He grabs both risk communicators at the same time and tells both the Monarch and General Tracer the exact same thing, that he wants to meet the compound at dawn. And of course, this sets up a question, how far away are they from the compound? If they're in L.A., Where's the compound? Because, you know, it's in the desert. That's, that's a good ways away. So how are they going to get there? Are they going to hop in the car and go? Well, we, uh, we see that, uh, you know, Tracer, of course, is uh, going to try and figure out what's going on here. He, you know, they're going to have a powwow. He doesn't want Samson getting all first blood well, on him. Well, and, and uh, this kind of goes back to, um, you know, Brock's really, like, you know, brilliance as a character. Uh, Earlier in the episode, Doc is like, you know, making fun, like, you know, always oh, thinking, boy, give him a hard time, it's new to him. You know? Yeah. Or like, don't give him a hard time, it's new to him, right? Um, but clearly, like, you know, Brock is actually, like, super smart, super clever, Dude, very well crazy, trained. Tr- he's crazy strategic. Yeah, and, and so, like, you know, uh, and also, let's be clear, like, Doc Venture is not a good read of people either. You know, so his no, read on Brock and, and, like, his assumption about, like, you know, their relationship as, as you know, friends and co-parents uh, is definitely not accurate to what the situation, like, really is by any means. Um, I mean, like, this is the same guy who got duped by a Teddy Rux. Uh, <laughs> Like, uh, so, you know, when you see these moments from Brock, like, it really allows you to see the character develop, not just, you know, uh, hear it through Doc's comment. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and we get, you know, that, that I wondered if, uh, Vaude Villain, you could take a moment and explain that first blood reference. Rambo, first blood, did you ever watch it? I'm honestly not, I didn't even, I didn't even note it here. I am not a Rambo. I'm not a Stallone. I'm not even an Arnold guy. Action movies were never my bag. Oh, um, dude, uh, First Blood is is amazing in terms of, like, meta-commentary on things. Uh, it, it works on a few levels, because first off, First Blood is, can be an allegory for Frankenstein. Um, okay. Absolutely works out that way. But First Blood is also what I love to call, like, uh, Reagan-era revisionist porn. <laughs> like, 
Rambo, John Rambo literally goes and wins the Vietnam War for us. Well, so first, first Blood, bear in mind, the original First Blood, because what you're talking about is Rambo Part 2. Oh, and I'm so sorry. Part 3 is when he wins the Afghanistan War. Uh, but Part 1 is where John Rambo, a Vietnam vet, is back home in the U.S. and gets into trouble when he runs afoul of Brian Dennehy as the local sheriff. And Brian you... Dennehy is forever playing a local sheriff. <laughs> <laughs> and essentially it ends up being Rambo against the sheriff's department, right? Now, uh, and of course, this, this movie, I, I haven't seen anything pop up again about it right now. Um, you know, the idea that this troubled Vietnam vet who, you know, didn't get any respect when he got home uh, because the Vietnam War was incredibly unpopular. Like, uh, you know, there's a, there has been a big push for years now to make wars something that are really popular with the American people. Like, I remember every time we've had a big lead up to war, like in 2004, right? Um, you know, the, you get all this stuff being pushed, being pushed, being pushed, trying to rationalize why this is so important and why Joe America needs to go die for this particular thing, right? And, um, you know, you certainly got that at the beginning of the Vietnam War with the Gulf of Tonkin incident, which turned out to be a lie. And then, so they've got all these people over here, but later on, after several years, the war had become so incredibly unpopular. You know, uh, you had the 60s counterculture movement um, really trying to end the Vietnam War it took a little while after that. Eventually, it ended, and people came home, and they did not get the heroes welcome. And bear in mind, the Vietnam War was also a time when people were drafted. So people who didn't even want to go got told that they had to go across the ocean and fight some guy they'd never met for freedom. It was not a fun time. Charlie was an intractable enemy. Like, it got to, like, they didn't, you know, they started off calling him Charlie. By the end, they were calling him Sir Charles. That's how much they respected <laughs> the Vietnamese's willingness to fight. You know, um, I, was, I was actually talking with a vet. So my dad's a Vietnam vet. And uh, I remember talking with somebody, um, a friend of his, and he was saying, I knew we weren't going to win the war when... Uh, I had just taken out a guy whose pack included a gun, a knife, ammunition, and vials of vitamins and a syringe. You were never going to beat a people who were willing to go without food and just sit up in trees and kill you, right? They were like, and who would take vials of, of uh, vitamins to keep themselves going so that they didn't have to not like accidentally miss you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Of course, after that experience, these guys come back and they're not treated as heroes. Um, I remember the, the general impression was that people were spitting on them when they came back. Um, I don't know that that actually happened. I remember seeing something to the effect of, you know, that was really more of an urban legend. But it was a legend that caught on because it felt true and that the amount of people had, the amount of respect that people had for the mission itself was so not there that, you know, it seemed like it would be true. You know what I mean? It's like, uh, it's like Donald Trump saying that he'd done more for Christianity than Jesus. He clearly didn't say that. But it seems like something he would say, you know. So but the whole setup for Rambo is this idea that a damaged Vietnam vet runs afoul of the military of, of a local sheriff's office and uses the skills and training that he has to take down the quote unquote lawful order 
over what turned out to be a misunderstanding. And that's why that reference fits this moment so well, because in many cases, given a different time frame, a different mission, that could have been Brock Sam's. And this is My actually what... part about this is, like, you're not even a Vietnam vet, and you started to go down that ramble. <laughs> that's why it's called Rambo, bro. Dude, like, it was totally, like, going to be like Walter there for a second. Like, are you, Shut up, Johnny. Are you connecting Vietnam to, like... <laughs> But no, uh, just a quick note about uh, Professor Savage's father. One of the nicest guys that you will ever meet that can kill you with his thumb. <laughs> there is a moment in every man's life when he realizes he could beat up his dad. I am almost 40 and have not had that moment because my 70-year-old dad could kill me and everyone I know in a heart. He was a uh, he was a he was a Green Beret in Vietnam and uh, like there you know I, I remember him telling me once he's like son. You need to make sure you can handle yourself. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, if I were to drop you off in the desert, I need to make sure that you can get home. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute, what? You're dropping me off in the desert? Like, it was just one of those things, man. Uh, I, weren't we talking about this with Hugh Jackman? Yeah, Hugh Jackman and uh, who's it? Uh, Baz Luhrmann. Baz Luhrmann. Um, his yeah. dad, yeah. Like, his dad used to just, they would do ballroom dancing competitions at the beginning of the day. And then, like, on the way home, he would just take a left into the outback and be like, see you guys in four days. Like, you know, don't get hit by any drop bears. Like, Right. Yeah. That, that, that's pretty much totally dad. He's like, I need you to be a well-rounded human. Walk. <laughs> so uh, at this point, we get back to, uh, be, uh, you know, they decide they're going to meet at the Venture Compound uh, at dawn. And this is where Hank gets really <laughs> excited. And this is probably my favorite joke in the entire episode. It's like, and we'll meet you back at the venture compound, Dawn. And Hank's like, we're finally going to meet our long-lost sister. Can you explain <laughs> what this joke is for those who might not have caught it? Back in an episode in uh, season one? Yeah, Love Bites. Love Bites. Uh, uh, no, you know, there's a, a whole kind of comedy of error situation. And uh, there's a wedding. And uh, during this wedding where... Uh, Dean is is going to uh, marry uh, <laughs> Baron Underbite. Um, like on the the invitation, it has some uh, peculiar wording that uh, leads uh, Hank into kind of a you know into his Hank brain. You are cordially invited to the wedding of one Baron Von Underbite uh, to I don't remember how they get there, but it's to uh, Dawn Venture. Yeah, they uh, misinterpreted. Yeah, yeah, they misinterpreted the name because there's the unknown. Uh, I believe it, the term was cock in a hen house, um, yet to be discovered. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's a pullback or a, a throwback joke to uh, about a season and a half before. Yeah. Yeah, they miss like they misheard uh, Dean's name as Dawn, and so when they keep, of course, Hank and Dean get separated. So they are constantly referring to the sister Dawn, who is actually Dean, but Hank doesn't realize that, and so he's convinced that they had a long lost sister who got who was going to get married to Baron Underbite. Yep, and that's why he's all dressed in the slave princess Leia getup and everything. <laughs> yeah, he is to be a woman. Yep, they assumed that he was Dawn. Uh, although, you know, some people are into what they're into. Uh, I've got a buddy of mine, and his big thing is booties. 
And he once told me she can have a chest like a 12-year-old girl as long as she's got that ass. And, uh, like, you know, maybe he just liked them skinny. Like, I don't know. But, uh, obviously, the hairdressers who were getting Dawn Venture ready for her wedding day were quite surprised when they gave him the bath and uh, were essentially like, the royal penis is clean, your highness. (laughs) (laughs) So, from there, we get to find out how they get to the Venture compound. Because... As the cocoon approaches the compound in the gray dawn, it stops and hovers over the lawn. And the Ventures and Brock drop out and head to the panic room. And, of course, Hank is protesting. Hank wants to be where the action is. And we goes inside the cocoon where the monarch is giving his, like, speech. And, of course, you can see the family running inside on the projector screen, um, you know, and... He, there's a guy who has to let him, the monarch, know. And he's like, oh, you know, uh, uh, actually, monarch, which part? monarch gets ticked that he just got interrupted and shoots him with a face full of dart. Do not interrupt! Are you happy now? And, of course, the guy's, like, twitching on the ground. Now you don't get to go on the murder crusade! <laughs> 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 you know, and because they do uh, some of these, like, support group-style you know, tropes. It's almost like their version of uh, Tarantino's conversations at tables, yeah. right? And I totally want to see, like, that henchman and pirate captain and, like, a few other people who are addicted to Trank from, like, due <laughs> right. to no fault of their own. <laughs> a lot of bumblers in that group. There's a lawyer somewhere, like, on TV in the Ventureverse, like, are you addicted to Tranquilizer through no fault of your own? Were you standing at the park? And then next thing you know, there were, you know, armed guys dressed like butterflies shooting tranquilizer darts. A week later, you know, you're raiding a zoo. Well, we get the boys and the family running inside. We've got the monarch getting ready for his murder crusade in the cocoon. And, of course, Dr. Mrs. the Monarch knows exactly what's up. You know, she's like, you know, this is a trap, right? And the monarch is so proud of himself because he has taken the opportunity (laughs) to upgrade Helper with two gigs of Kablam. And the reference on two gigs was so specific that I actually had to look up what the standard memory sizes were for that time period to find out if this reference was dated or timely. And uh, at the end of the 2000s, the standard like required RAM was 512 megabytes. Uh, and so from 2000, from 02 to 04, it was two gigs. And from 05 to 09, it was four gigs. So this episode aired in 2008, which means two gigs of Kablam is slightly dated, implying Monarch hasn't bought a computer in a while. Well, no, because Monarch uh, spent a lot of like money on that really fly special edition like uh, iMac with his logo. Right. <laughs> and like upgrading that thing is not a, a you know a cheap endeavor, especially the more dated it becomes. So yeah, no. Uh, you could tell, I'm surprised that he just didn't stick a flash drive of Kabam. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, during all of this, Helper manages to cut himself free and is going to try to escape. And the OSI arrived. Now, Brock has gone in, and he's in the control room. And di- did you catch what he was at, what the control room was for? Well, that's the control room uh, that they appear in later on, uh, on Halloween, where Billy and White and Hatred and Venture are taking bets on uh, trick-or-treaters. That's also Mother. Ooh. 
It is Saint Yap. Uh, the proper like one or the one that White was working at because Mother again mm. wasn't unlocked because uh, uh the the main console for Mother was uh with no, the top side unit. There's the the top side unit and then the underground bunker the, where the they're all the top side all... unit that White was working on that where it's like you know. Uh, oh, it's registering the launch codes, but then, like, you hear the dial-up. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, so... Somewhere, it, it, somewhere in the background of that program, Mother is lurking. Yep. That, I mean, and it very clearly actually says Mother on the on the console. Oh, it's actually, like, uh, old-school uh, built into the woodwork and everything? Well, I mean, bear in mind, you've got all the TVs and stuff up there, and I think it's in the bottom of the frame. Like, it's down a little bit, but okay. it's very clearly Mother. Um, and, of course, Brock's down there. He's in the control room. Tracer calls in. And then the monarch crawls, calls in, and Brock puts Tracer on hold, which, of course, makes Tracer quite upset. Uh, but this is where Brock springs his trap. Sheila was right. It is a trap, and Brock is springing that trap. And his plan is to have Tracer come around and say hello. And that is when Sheila gets even more suspicious. And, of course, the monarch just laughs her off. He's like, he's Rusty Venture, not the OSI, you know. Little does he know, <laughs> it's the OSI, and it is hubris for sure. So Brock lights the cigarette and tells the general he's coming around, and that's when the monarch swings around and the monarch horde attack OSI. How does this go for the horde? Terribly. <laughs> I, I, I've seen, like, uh, I don't know, uh, one-sided fistfights go better. Like, uh, I've seen World Star videos like go better for <laughs> um, because like they come out like swinging again with these trank darts right like bam but then OSI has like laser guns <laughs> like they're straight GI Joe in these dudes and they come out in little quad bikes and all that yeah there's they they don't stand a chance one of the things that I thought was so funny about this is of course they've all got their trank darts that they're shooting and it's all just bouncing off of the standard field issue OSI armor. Like, and the OSI comes out swinging like the opening, like, you know, the opening credits of a G.I. Joe episode. You know, like, it is dynamic, and they are coming out with all kinds of crazy, like, stuff that you can buy in stores. You know, like, don't forget the individual attack sled. Don't forget the rage, you know. Like, they've got all these little things that are coming out, and... OSI is just starting to take out the Monarch's cameras and the Monarch starting to get really worried because this is not how this is supposed to go. Um, and Traster has no idea who the Monarch is. And Brock is, starts taunting him just a little bit more. And Brock's like, come on, is that any way to treat my friend? And Traster at this point thinks Brock's gone off the reservation. Maybe he has gone over. Maybe he did what Hunter Gathers did and is you know, essentially gone over to the Guild of Calamitous Intent. Um, and so, of course, you know, he's like, oh, it looks like Samson's gone to the Guild, you know, to try and, you know, and of course, Brock's like, oh, what are you doing? I'm just trying to level the playing field. Um, and, of course, General Tracer has no idea what trade secrets he gave up. So he's got to capture Brock Samson alive to find out what he's told and who he is. And that's when we get to this great, like, side-by-side -side moment where the Monarch's got to go all in and Tracer's got to go all in. So they both show their hand. And simultaneously, they yell, Form battle squadrons and prepare for full assault on my order. The and Monarch. You get, uh, you get a, one of the running jokes that kind of pick up um, that they haven't done lately is uh like you know there was it a doe is talking to tracer uh you want to give me you want me to give the order to take out the big cocoon and he's like 
oh, that's what that thing is? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like, nobody recognizes Cocoon. <laughs> like, there's not enough Wilford Brimley on the outside is the problem. Right. Um, one of the things that is... Uh, one of the things Bada dropped here is the uh, is you know he wants the death's head panoply ready to go um, now I, I know what a panoply is and I will explain it here but do you guys want to give it a go first I'm um, in the middle of looking up the comic book reference for what the armor is at uh, you go for it all right so a panoply is essentially a suit of armor right um, pan of course meaning all so it's it's the entire thing right panoply um you know uh, like the early greek armor was the for the was the hoplite armor and so the panoply is essentially all the armor so you could call an they entire all the pan. yeah so you could call the you know like an, a full suit of knight's armor a panoply um, the, the Mycenaeans or uh, the Mycenaeans, uh, when they, you know, they had their boar's tusk helms, uh, the boar's tusk ivory helmets, and then this like full suit of armor, you know, back in 1200 BC, you know, well before uh, the Europeans ever, you know, Europeans proper, shall we call it, came up with the idea. So, you know, you've got like the death's head panoply is going to be very themed and quite covering. So, at this well, moment, and, uh, according to the Go Team Venture Bible, um, it's, a, it's supposed to be kind of a riff on uh, not just like Iron Man style, like you know, armor, augmented armor, uh, but very much like some of the the Batman suits, like augmented Batman suits you see later on. Oh yeah, um, like uh, the Dark Knight Returns. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, and and the Hellbat suit was amazing, uh, and yeah. they have a few other ones. Uh, there was one, and I forget what it was. They even had like a augmented like robo bat suit uh that had red suns in the knuckles so when he punched superman it depowered him like tiny little red suns like i mean fucking, i love super science uh, <laughs> and of course uh that's actually something batman's taken very seriously um especially with like the batman beyond stuff so they gave you batman beyond and this is the future of batman's augmented suit and now like uh, a few years back they started actually introducing the first generations of that so for a short time uh commissioner gordon who is an ex-marine by the way uh was actually like given the helm of batman by the police and he like works with this giant super heavy suit um and that's what's called as the super heavy and it very much looks like the bat version of the death's head panoply like it's <laughs> right. a little ridiculous and bulky but you're like yeah this thing is here to fuck something up right yep. well speaking of messing stuff up uh we've got while this battle is in swing we've got helper sneaking out and the boys down in the panic room with Doc. Um, Hank, of course, thinks there's something outside the door. And he says, I, I think there's a skunk ape out there. Did you guys look up skunk ape? Yeah, uh, I've seen some of the videos online about skunk apes. Uh, other names include the Florida Bigfoot, the Swamp Squatch, the Miyaka, the Swamp Cabbage Man, uh, and they are supposedly native. Uh, there have been sightings, I'm sorry, in Florida, North Carolina, Arkansas, and Louisiana. Mm -hmm. Skunk ape is actually one of the things I came across doing some of my uh, weird background research for this other thing I'm working on, um, <laughs> where essentially, like, uh, it ties the explosion of cryptid sightings, uh, cryptids being like a, you know, kind of shortened version of cryptozoology, 
right? So a cryptid is a, a cryptozoological animal, an animal that is like Nessie, you know, can't like it, to be exist, yeah. you know, can't confirm to exist. Um, and uh, apparently, like there was an explosion of all of these things after 1947. So, like this research I'm doing actually ties like skunk ape sightings to Roswell. <laughs> Like, uh, all I'm saying is you go to look at a skunk ape and you come back out with a tinfoil hat. Well, a tinfoil hat might offer some protection against what's lurking outside because he's going to come in with some serious drama uh, because they open up the door. Um, actually, let me let me back up just a second. Uh, <laughs> Look, anybody listening with actual tinfoil hat is like, they're watching outside. <laughs> right. So, um, let me back up just a second. Uh, Hank, of course, is hanking all over the place, and Dean is just essentially having a panic attack in the corner. Um, you know, he, he's like, why can't I have a normal life? And this is kind of Doc's moment here. You know, this is Doc being a dad. He's like, oh, Dean, I had that dream, too. just give up on that dream and of course hank decides to let him in and it is none other than sergeant hatred not a skunk ape and sergeant hank hatred you know comes in he's like why didn't you let him in that's pop's arch enemy technically on paper right Uh, and of course hatred just starts screaming kill me kill me i'm a failure and, of course, Dean curled up in the side. He's like, oh, you!" I think he's having a heart attack. You don't know heart pain. <laughs> <laughs> uh, back outside, the OSI and the Horde are going at it, and it's not going well. Again, OSI is running with this, like, full-scale G.I. Joe cartoon intro. The Horde is massively overmatched. It is grisly. It is not going well. Like, every single OS guy is taking out, like, 18 members of the Horde by sneezing. You know, it's, it's not pretty. Um, now, of course, 21 and 24 have managed to survive this whole time. Throughout all their time with the Monarch, they've managed to survive. And we get a, a sense here of how they've managed to survive. It is not by being the guys out front leading the charge. It is by being the guys who hide in the Monarch Mobile eating Cool Ranch Doritos and rubbing snack on their face to make it look like authentic battle damage. <laughs> and listening to the radio so they know what happened. <laughs> that spot where he's like, no, no, listen, right there. That guy's totally on fire. You can hear it. <laughs> it. It sounds like the cover to the Rage Against the Machine album. Right. Um, so Helper actually gets into the car, and uh, at 24 is like, oh, no, he's stealing our hiding place. <laughs> like, <laughs> I really liked that line. Um, you know, 24 bails out. I'm sorry, 21 bails out. Uh, and 24 uh, is still buckled in, um, and he, you know, he can't get it unbuckled. And as Helper is starting to drive off, you know, 21 is asking 24, you know, why did you buckle in? And we get 24 going, I don't know. And it is so sad. It is so sad. <laughs> Yeah, like, it's, you big, dumb, safe idiot, why would you do that? Yeah, yeah. So, Hatred, of course, we bounce back to the panic room where Hatred is kind of bent over and Doc is trying to choke him. And Hatred's just screaming, choke me, strangle my pain away. But Doc, as we learned earlier, has weak joints. And uh, Doc is just weak and actually then starts trying to stop Hatred from killing himself, which is, you know, to Doc's credit, right. um, you know, Hank at this point 
has taken off his shirt, wrapped it around his head, grabbed an umbrella, and is trying to open the door. Um, and Hank wants to go fight. I don't know what it is about wrapping your shirt around your head and grabbing an umbrella that makes sense to him, but uh, let, let's just say that it is consistent with the character we've come to know and love because these are the same guys who think preparation for an adventure is a flashlight and astronaut ice cream. <laughs> well, and, and we've seen both of these things before. Like, uh, he wrapped the head, he wrapped the, the shirt on his head um, in the pleasure can. So there's even a chance that's soaked in pee right now. Uh, <laughs> and then, of course, you know, Batman can't, the bat can't go into battle without his trusty umbrella. Right. How's he supposed to get the drop on those guys? Yeah, absolutely. So, of course, hatred, you know, every Doc and Dean both think that Hank is nuts wanting to go out there, but hatred is inspired, you know? Uh, you know, he's got guts, he says. And Doc is kind of offended and start, you know, they start trying to measure their dick. You know, he's like, oh, yeah, I think that takes guts. My father maybe kill a man with a house key at 10. And Hadrian's like, I want to date an entire Labrador retriever. <laughs> <laughs> and you know it's just going to keep going and get weirder and weirder. But Hank, you well, know, it's like, fact, he wasn't even serving in, like, the Pacific Theater, like no, no, that was that just was, in like a, a like an Air Force base in Colorado. No, nah, man, it, you know he was watching the Warriors on somebody else's TV. Like you know, you can watch TV through somebody's window. He's watching the TV through somebody's window. The dog walks up. He's like, oh, I could use a snack. Either that, or I, I imagined it was a bet, right? Like, I bet you can't eat that entire Labrador Retriever. Watch me, you know? No money. No money bet. Just a pure, like, gentleman's bet. You can't do it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so they were probably at a swingers party. He's like, you know what's really going to impress uh, Princess Tiny Feet? So uh, <laughs> at this point, you know, help uh, – hatred is all in on Hank's idea. He's, you know, we got to go help Brock. He's right. He's crazy. He's going to get us killed. <laughs> and hatred has a moment of realization here, a moment of hope, and that glimmer of light, that spark has returned to his soul. And hatred says, I'm a lover. Or, I'm a fighter, not a lover. And we get another brilliant line here. It's like, in you, you were Rusty Venture one. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, and I feel like that's like the thesis of Doc all in one sentence. It is. It absolutely yeah. is. So, of course, uh, you know, he turns his attention to Hank now. It's like, and Hank, Hank's becoming a man. And Hank's like, I can feel it in my bone. And he turns to Dean, and, and Dean is sensitive. <laughs> and of course, well, Doc's which apparently, according to us, sensitive means the first ones to die in the zombie apocalypse. I thought it was the second. Well, second that's one. what I thought. That's what I said. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, of course, uh, you know, Doc being the realist and the self-preservationist says we need an army. And Hank has his moment. He says, we've got one, if you'll let me open my Christmas gifts early. And I loved the horns here, right? Like, we start getting this, like, like this, like these glorious, triumphant horns. Um, and our next shot is Doc down in the lab. And then we get this great Babes in Toyland theme as the clones start decanting. And Hatred starts leading the clone slug out the door. And the boys are arranged by the door. They've danced around each other and have thrown their hands up into the air, fingers outstretched, V for victory, V for team venture. And Hatred ducks underneath 
and the clone slug army marches out behind him onto the field. Brock is shocked to see it. And this army, led by Sergeant H, marches right into the middle of the field of battle. And everybody is so shocked, they stop. Brock sees what's happening on the screen and is dumbfounded and starts running up. Hatred, clone slugs, on one side the horde, on the other side OSI, and the boys are thrilled. Yay! We help! Kinda! <laughs> <laughs> well, and uh, a quick note on the, the really awesome uh, Venture underwear there uh, <laughs> that the clone slugs are wearing. So... According to the the book, uh, dialogue, you know, uh, you know, gospel from from the creators, as penned by the the prophet Ken Plume, um, they put the underwear there because uh, they didn't want to draw a bunch of you know clone penises, essentially. Um, so they did the they underwear did reference. The and that was to have clone slugs. <laughs> right. Um, well, and then you get like this whole like weird thing, like. All right, so if it like they're naked and it hits cold air, are they going to get a right? Like we don't need to answer these questions, right? <laughs> right. Um, so they do the the venture underwear, and it's supposed to be kind of like the uh, mix between the underwear from Dune and uh, Doctor Manhattan's underwear. <laughs> <laughs> Doctor Dune Hatton. Well, go. and for fans <laughs> of the the newer Watchmen series, uh, Senator Joe Keen underwear. Joking yeah. Jr. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm thrilled that it has brought a little bit of peace into this massive battle. Um, and, of course, uh, you know, the crowds are kind of thronged. Brock runs out. Um, Helper, of course, comes out in his car and starts racing in the Monarch Mobile onto the field and manages to stop just short of the clone, right? Brock submits to OSI. And the monarch comes out. And we get a great monarch line where he yells, The death's head panoply, the final solution in tailoring. <laughs> so, okay, uh, do you think Enzo made that suit also? No. Enzo doesn't do metal work. The reason I think that is I, I, we haven't met the monarch's guy yet. Uh, I mean, that, that, that'd be a good place to go. Uh, but I imagined it was the same guy who made the... Um, the caterpillars for the Captain Sunshine episode? You know, there's got to be a guy somewhere, right? Like uh, some sort of metallurgist. I mean, somebody had to manufacture uh, Hatred's, like, hover tank. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and, and like, you would imagine that, like, yeah. dude, the YouTube videos in the Ventureverse must be amazing. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know what the YouTube videos in the Ventureverse are? Do you ever watch the movie UHF? Yeah, there's the silo, or the, there's the scientist Philo, and he's like, today we're going to learn how to make plutonium out of common household chemicals. You know, like, right. that, that's what the YouTube videos in the Ventureverse are. So we've got Monarch. He's been set down on his death's head. Like, he's been set on his feet out there because he can't actually walk in his death's head panoply. Apparently, it is the final solution in tailoring, but it does not allow for any individual movement. It's more like a, <laughs> like a cat. And so uh, he needs his henchman to hit the button on his sleeve because he can't even move his arm. And when he hits the button on his sleeve, he's kind of, you know, he's standing behind him and he bends over to push the button on his sleeve. And the monarch's wings expand up like, and cuts this poor guy's head right off. And <laughs> that's when 
the horror start. Uh, the monarch's death's head panoply races into the air and starts firing lasers out. Um, and, of course, it's hitting everywhere, but it's especially hitting all these clone slugs. So it's not just taking out the horde. It's not just taking out OSI guys. It's decimating the clone slugs. And, of course, the boys are watching this, and we get that great line where it's like, I feel like I'm the one dying. You think? <laughs> <laughs> well, and I love the, the animated motion on the Death's Head Panoply. Like, it shoots up and does starts doing, like, a 360, but then it yeah. starts doing these, like, diagonal gyroscope moves. Yeah. Like, to hit every direction. <laughs> Did you ever watch uh, Equilibrium with Christian Bale? Yes. Yeah, it's kind of like the gun kata, where it's like, we've measured, we've run the math on this, and here's how you can hit everything, you know? Um, you know, I, I guess that's called Krav Maga. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, you know, we've got uh, we've got Hank out there. We should be out there with them, fighting with our moist warrior brethren, which makes no, two right. episodes. <laughs> you only live once. <laughs> it, right. This makes two episodes where we've had the word moist thrown in. Now, yeah, uh, taking down a notch. You only live once. That was pretty good. And the panoply at this point goes haywire. The monarch pukes, and then it burns out and falls to the ground. Uh, and Traster kind of walks up, and, you know, this is where we kind of get the big reveal for the episode. Can, can you tell us what's going on? Or, uh, so uh, Traster comes up and, you know, kind of gives Brock, like, this whole, like, you know, what's going on? We're, you know, coming uh, to get you. You know, Mama Bird comes up, uh, what does he say, uh, running and a squawking and a running, you know, when he hits yeah. some chicks. And, they, and so this is where uh, Brock has this moment of realization for as clever as he is, he's been played somehow. Like, all of this is a big setup. Um, and I've actually, you know, kind of sat down to, to think about the logistics of everything that's been set up uh, for us because we actually see this across a few episodes. Um Mm -hmm. Starting with Assassin Annie 911, right? Uh, so mm -hmm. not only do we get the setup for Hunter Gathers, but that's when Molotov had time to uh, mess with his car. Mm -hmm. You know, that's when, you know, she had uh, all the time in the world to, you know, essentially turn, do like put over the processing that makes, you know, Adrian turn on him, right? That kind of instigates the whole ordeal. And then, mm -hmm. you know, uh, she's the one who comes in and is like, hey, these guys are here to kill you. Uh, you know, yeah. he's, she's, you know, the one giving intel. And so he's having, like, all this realization kind of running through his head all at once that, like, you know, uh, the OSI is not the one who sent, like, you know, the three best-themed assassins in the world. Uh, Brock is definitely... And, and we get one other moment, uh, and I'm going to go ahead and just bring it up uh, because I know we're going to get to it eventually, but, you know, in terms of, like, Brock, this is the first time, but it will not be the last time, where we get to see, like, the realization wash over Brock's face that, like, you know, his whole life is a lie right now. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. um, and Brock's a simple dude. That's a hard thing for him to handle. You know, he's very much concrete in where he is in life. You know, uh, when he's, you know taking his spiritual journey on ayahuasca, like, he basically reaffirms that, like, he is a killing machine designed for government wet work alone. And mm -hmm. now, like, you know, what happens, like, when when this, like, you know, machine can be manipulated and, you know, 
uh, and, and I love his like little speech at the end of this. It really just gives you quite exact like how exasperated he is about this. I've mm-hmm. seen enough like butterfly clone like dead clone army. <laughs> I, I've got it right here. It's a uh, thank you, no sir. I've seen enough spinning butterfly naked boy armies. Screw this. I rather uh, quit. I quit. Yeah. And now let's let's kind of put this in. Let's kind of put this. Let's wrap this up a little bit neater. Traster has revealed that he was there to help Brock because his work was getting sloppy. He was there to save Brock. He wasn't there to hurt Brock. And when Brock realized, that's when Brock starts putting the pieces together. And Brock is all of a sudden at a moment where he has been manipulated. He has been tricked. And someone has had it in the back of him the whole time to make him believe this, hoping that he was going to get killed in the process. And that's a hard thing to come to because all the systems that Brock had in place to help ensure that he was doing what needed to be done have suddenly been yanked out from underneath him. And when General Traster offers, you know, it's pretty much tells him, look, man, you need to come in. Your work's been getting sloppy. Abuse of company property. And none of your reports mentioned a clone farm, at which point Doc's like, wait a minute, you've been writing reports on me? Like, Brock <laughs> hasn't, you know, things aren't going the way they should be going. And, well, and this that realization... Back to, uh, that goes back again to the nature of, like, you know, Doc and Brock's relationship and how Doc clearly has no idea what is actually, like, going on, what what Brock is actually there for. Well, and I want to point out, too, that, like, Brock met Doc in the clone bay the very first time they met. So this is a choice that Brock made the moment he met Doc. That's it a very gone... point. Um, it's like one of those, I mean, you, you have to imagine he's not going to write reports, like, every day, maybe, like, weekly. So something yeah. in that first week had to endear him to Doc on some level. Like, maybe I could see, like, him and Doc totally having, like, that drunk, uh, almost, like, Jaws-like scene in the bottom of the boat where they're all, like, singing and doing the song and stuff. And then they have, like, the heart-to-heart. And he's like, you know, man, I'm just, I'm, I can't stand losing my boys, like, you know, blah, blah. And he really reveals, like, the emotional reason for having the clones. And then that's where Brock kind of, you know understands exactly what's happening. Like, this isn't a huge mad science project that's going to affect the world, per se, like the teleporter that comes up later. This is an emotional passion project. And he explains it. He's like, if your kids are accident-proof, you make them wear a helmet. If they're they're death-prone, you keep a couple of clone slugs in the base. Like, the realization is that Samson doesn't report this because he comes to love the boy. And the recognition... Or maybe it even happened in that first week. Maybe that's when Hank jumped off the roof and Doc was able to bring him back. And Samson was like, okay, you know what? I can actually live with this. I won't report it because it's actually doing something good. You know, it's one of those calls that you have to make in the field in order to actually be able to do your job. Well, and I mean, the nature of Brock's work alone really puts him at that kind of weird warrior monk level where he's all the time assessing the morality of his situation you know uh for better or worse like you know uh whatever the actions might be you know kind of on on the outside uh, objective you know on morality like you know he's constantly assessing you know uh the the essentially like moral ramifications of every decision being made. And you know what? Like, we get a sense that, like, that more that, that system doesn't function like ours because, again, murder is always on the table for Brock. In fact, murder is kind mm-hmm. of a go-to solution. It's, it's a hobby. 
you know, he does it, he'd do it for free. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, like, uh, he, he's a really complicated, you know, I, I will go as far as to say, like, he's got a real deep philosophical streak that he can't verbalize on some level. There is no need to verbalize that which you feel so intensely and acutely that it cannot be put, like, there are no words for it to exist. Like, we made that Dune reference earlier, like, Brock name for it is a killing word. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure the Germans have a word for it, like, somewhere lost deep in their language. (laughs) Dude, you know that that word is two paragraphs long, and it's just one word with no space. So, um, Tracer is trying to get Brock to come back in and get a new assignment, at which point he replies, no, sir, I've seen enough spinning butterfly naked boy armies. Screw this. I quit. And the family's really excited. It's like, you tell him, Brock, good for you. Where are you going? You know, uh, uh, what's that? At which point Brock walks off and Doc's like, where are you going? Aren't you going to help clean up? And I love the idea that Doc was like, yeah, you tell them you don't need them. Now get to work. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I mean, Doc knows he's not paying Brock. Uh, I mean, I I don't know what the financial relationship here is, but I speculate since it's kind of like a, you know, Brock's been assigned. It's like a secret service type deal where that's at the expense of the assigning agent. It's not like when you have a a parade or a, a dignitary or, you know, somebody coming to town and you call for police protection and you pay for that hourly out of your pocket. So, like, Doc Venture is really, like, he's kind of just, like you said, like the, the biggest idiot in the room because, uh, you know, he knows he's not paying Brock's salary, but he's like, now chop, chop, Swedish murder machine. Clean up my gooey <laughs> yeah, <right>. mess. <laughs> right. um, and at that moment uh, is when we get what is supposed to be the big, important, emotional thing that happens in this entire episode. Uh, Brock walks over and he tells Monarch, Monarch, I'm taking your car. And Monarch is still dazed, dizzy, and up, you know, Really no, out of it. Whoa! If Hunter Gathers has big, beautiful tits, then Brock Samson says, "I'm taking your fucking car." <laughs> right. That's true. That's true. Like, he just, dude, it's the coolest, most, you know, Steve McQueen, James Dean, Marlon Brando, like, turns like, "I'm taking your fucking car." Right. And he starts walking over to it and Helper starts getting out of the car. 24, of course, is still in the back. And uh, that's when it happened. Now, we saw Sheila get up earlier when she was in the cocoon and she left the button that triggered the explosion in her seat. And we see that seat. We see that button. The seat is empty. The button's in it. And then, as Brock is walking over, the car explodes. Sending Brock, Helper, being ejected from the explosion. Quickly, Brock is knocked back. Uh, We see this massive ball of flame. And then we see 21 standing there. And then what falls into his hand but the head of his best friend? Ray Romano. Ray Romano. Yeah. (laughs) Now, Um, and like one of the things they talk about at this moment in commentary is how they kind of narfed up in a storytelling sense because they hit us with such a big emotional impact. 
24 was a fan favorite. It's almost like killing Ned Stark. Like, why? (laughs) Like, he he was one of the good ones. Uh, So, you know, that really had a big emotional punch, but just moments before, they shifted the entire paradigm of the show. These boys no longer, you know, can can go off Batmanning. Like, they are now one life to live. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you don't get a shot at General Hospital. No, exactly. There's, there's no more dynasty. <laughs> not not as the world turns, right? Um, <laughs> but no, I mean, like, that's that's a pretty big moment. And then, you know, punctuated, like, followed up right by this. Because, I mean, I remember watching this episode when it aired and having that, like, holy shit, what just happened moment. Um, and it didn't even dawn on me at the time that, like, the, the whole tone of the show is going to change. And not because 24 died. They immediately regret that decision, by the way, like, thoroughly. Like, it's brought up on the commentary. It's brought up in the book. Like, this is something they immediately regret, but they love, you know, what kind of is birthed out of it later on. Because this is where you get, you know, uh, like, fat, yeah, you know, Cheeto eating or a Cool Ranch Dorito eating Gary into, you know, two-ton 21, right? Yeah. Uh, But at the same time, like, you know, they were like, why did we just kill off half of our Abbott and Costello? (laughs) Yeah. Well, one of the things that I remember hearing about at the time, and I don't know if this is verified at all, was that uh, 21, 24's voice was hard for them to do. And they just didn't want to do it anymore. I, I mean, it sounds like uh, that would be something that would vocally take a lot out of somebody, like how you'd have to, the part of the, the, the throat you'd have to talk to. to get it. See, I, I, I don't even have, like, the, the frame of voice. I don't that, know! Right? Like, yeah, uh, Powder Blue Stanza. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and another one uh, that I thought was interesting, like uh, when Jackson Public talks about doing the Monarch, he actually says he comes out of those sessions being a little depressed because you have to get so high on yourself. And then when you're like <laughs> right. done recording, like there's a letdown. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, yeah, now I'm going to climb into my nice sports car. Oh, it sucks. No so cocoon. We've got the end of the episode. And. Now's the time when we really need to reflect on what we've learned about Brock and why this episode and series of episodes in particular uh, were my choice for what we learn about our favorite Swedish murder. Did machine. we want to cover the stinger first? Oh, yes. Let's do that. Because that's, that's a big one that reframes the whole conspiracy again, right? So it cuts to uh, Molotov Cocktease's office, uh, which... Uh, is actually a famous, it's modeled on a famous hotel uh, in L.A., and the view from her office is actually the view from that hotel um, into the L.A. basin. Um, And you've got uh, Hunter sitting across from her, like, and they're toasting champagne at their, you know, job well done. Um, And uh, this is where you get a great line from Hunter Gathers, calling him a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, buttercream frosted murder cake. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, they're toasting. And this is where you get the impression that they've been in cahoots for uh, quite some time, you know, at least since Assassin Annie 911, right? Mm -hmm. And that is the episode where, you know, they both simultaneously appear, um, you know, in terms of, like, you know, uh, the plots and things that are going on. Um, so it all kind of wraps up and 
you find out that all of this was orchestrated to just get Brock Sampson out of the OSI. Mm-hmm. And, and they so what end? We'll find out in four. Yeah. And, you know, really, when you look at it, this is, once you see this stinger and you kind of realize that everything that happened with Hunt, everything that happened with Molotov, everything that we've covered, like even the stuff of the orb, has been leading to this moment. And this moment is the end of Brock Sampson's tenure with the Venture. And that is, you know, it's not just getting him out of the OSI, it's getting him out of the way. And now the Black Hearts Assassins, what, what is it? The Black Hearts Assassins Guild Assass- Society? It, it, it's, uh, I think it's just the Black And it, that's a, you know, very on-the-nose Joan Jett reference. Yeah. Um. <laughs> and, of course, you know, now that Brock is off the board, a lot of the other pieces can move too. You know, if there was one thing that was really keeping the order in line, it was having Brock there. And they got Brock to take out the three deadliest assassins in the world and then remove himself from action. So now the Blackhearts are the only resource for these people. So all of this was set up as a business lot? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, one, that's, that's one hell of a viral marketing campaign. Um, yeah. This is well, a grand opening. Well, and uh, what I love about capping off our Brock block with this series of episodes is it goes into, you know, Brock's acceptance of himself while simultaneously always question. He loves doing the wet work. He loves the government life, you know, being the G-man and, and the cool guy at OSI. Like, let's let's call it what it is. Like, you know, he, he's like, you know, the Fonz of the OSI. And, like, while simultaneously being this immense badass, he's always somebody else's pawn, you mm-hmm. know, and that's something he's always coming to terms with, right? So back in the, sa- or uh, not Assassinani, um, oh, Lord, what was the, the first one we did uh, with Hot Dolphin? <laughs> the, uh, the Scooby-Doo episode. Yes. Um, so in that particular episode, you know, he's examining, you know, is, is he even a killer? Like, anymore, does he have the heart for it? At which point, you know, his... You know, uh, you know, trip on ayahuasca really affirms his, uh, you know, sense of self. But that whole sense of self is, you know, you're a pawn boy, you know, like and then that's the whole thing is, you know, he really likes being badass, but he hates being a pawn. And yeah. this is where that kind of really, you know, comes to conflict and he has to make a choice. And that choice yeah. is like, you know, I'm going to choose inner peace on some level here. Like, it's not the murdering I have a problem with. It's being somebody else's pawn. Yeah. It's dynamic. And, you know, in many ways, this is the end of Brock as we've known. You know, is there ever been a point in any of the situations we've seen him in throughout the previous episodes where he's just given up? There, He got kind of close with our Scooby-Doo episode, right? You know, where he was really starting to question who he was as a person and whether or not this is what he wanted to do. And then he came back out, like, more thrilled to be a part of what he was doing when, you know, he kind of got back into it. And he literally got his fill. And I wonder if it was having to watch Hank and Dean die over and over and over again, compounded with the knowledge that he had just gotten played for a fool. 
fool to realize this wasn't what he thought it was. He has seen enough death of people that he loved. Yes, it was the same two people over and over and over again. But, you know, he's seen enough of them. I, I for one, don't understand that because I find a certain pleasure out of a hundred dead Hugh Jackmans in boxes. Um, (laughs) So that's not a thing I relate to, but I see the point you're getting. Uh, You know, there's a lot of like, you know, compound trauma on top of like, you know, existential questioning of like what he's doing. (laughs) Yeah. And I will also use uh, any situation possible to talk about a hundred dead Hugh Jackman's in boxing. Yeah. There are lots of opportunities to really explore what life outside of any of those elements will be. And it's something that he hasn't explored. I mean, bear in mind, he got right out of college into the OSI and has been doing this ever since. Like, is this his midlife crisis? You know, I think it might be. I mean, I think that this is as close as he's going to get to a midlife crisis. I mean, you know, uh, in, in some ways it has all the elements, right? Um, like, you know... He's uh, going to need another sports car. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, like, he, he doesn't have a sports car anymore. Uh, <laughs> um, he does, like, and we know, like, uh, shortly after this, like, in his... Uh, respite period he does take a little bit of vacation and get into some art therapy it's not really his thing but you know <laughs> so um i mean all right uh villain what what would be your kind of wrap up on on brock like what's your your take on brock as a person kind of as the the episodes we've displayed well it's definitely one of these ones with him where you're looking at a his relation to the family that's a big one just in regards to the show in its in and of itself um and you know going through assassin annie and looking at all the different pieces of that you see that the the loving and the caring and all of that that's there uh, the fact that they stick together through the amount of seasons they do. He's off for one and a half from the family or so, and then they kind of get back together. Um, it, it's it's nice to see that that is something solidly built into a cartoon show. Um, not a lot of cartoon shows would necessarily take the time to show a murder machine soft sweet side doing the uh, lice combing through the hair. So you get that element there. Um, the self-reflection in Dio de los Muertos. Um, I mean, we... Love ta- laughing at uh, we love laughing at a hot dolphin, but um, there's there's so much that you you kind of get where he isn't the mindless murder machine. He does actually have to stop and think about himself. He does reflect and he does actually like take that time with himself, which is nice to see yet again in a cartoon show. Um, you don't usually see a lot of self reflection like that. And then you end it with um, you know coming into this one where you do see somebody who takes actual stock of where they're at with their life, and it's such a bizarrely <laughs> well-rounded human character just to be coming out of a cartoon show that you just kind of have to... I think you realize almost every character in the show has this kind of development arc at some point uh, if they're big enough in the show, and it's just... it's impressive. So, okay, while we've got, you know, kind of the the wrap-up going on here, um, I want to take this moment and uh, ask everybody, what do you think Hot Dolphin really means? Because uh, my approach it is... Uh, because again, uh, Don is uh, impossible. Is a banco. Uh, fuck the hot dolphin. So I think that that's the central message. Is like, fuck it. <laughs> Don't worry so much about it. Just be wow. the thing. Do the Your thing. Your central message is the main point of the movie Fight Club. To let 
let that which truly does not matter slide? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> essentially, like, you know, don't question your place in the universe so much as enjoy it. You know, it, it's very much a, a simple, like, it's a very complicated Buddhist principle, right? But, you know, pared down to, you know, absurdity and, uh, you know, something that is a little bit more colloquial. Again, like, you know, uh, you know, just fuck it. Ride, you know. Ride the pink dolphin, man. <laughs> ride the pink <laughs> dolphin. Well, Brock is going to ride the pink dolphin out into the sunset with the end of this particular episode. And it will be an entire break. Uh, I, how many years was it between the end of this episode and the beginning of uh, season four? I want to say it was like a full like two, two and a half years. I, I think it was the longer, one of the longest breaks in between seasons was the gap here, yeah. I mean, uh, that's, a, that's a heck of a break. It's and, why it's been running from, what, 2004 to 2019 or whenever the last season finally finished. It only has seven seasons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, we were talking about that. Like, uh, I, I think the, the first episode debuted uh, late 2003, and, okay. like, uh, if they can really hustle they can have 10 ep- like 10 seasons out in 20 years if they hustle <laughs> like this is the guys, and i love them so much they are the george rr R. martins of animation <laughs> <laughs> no i that is not deserved the reason i say that is because they keep putting stuff out every couple of years whereas george rr R. martin put stuff out and then just didn't. Well, no, no, he totally is putting stuff out, but it's just not Game of Thrones. Like, do you know how many little short stories, and beyond that, like, how many short story collections that he's edited, and, like, his yeah. whole wild card series and stuff? Oh, no, yeah. George R. R. Martin's arching everybody right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you want me to go write? Okay, let me go write this, like, you know, wild card TV show about like blah 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 blah. That is not Game of Thrones. Oh, yeah. if he really wants to arch, he should do the um, IKEA podcast by George R. R. Martin. <laughs> I've written new names for every piece of furniture. I've written new names for every attachment, accessory, and desk lamp. Like, behold, backstory. Dude, I would love to see the IKEA, like, yeah, the the IKEA the Westeros IKEA from Westeros. Yeah, like, uh, yeah, these are totally like you know hand blown Dornish plates with imperfections to tell that they were made by the indigenous peoples of Dorn. <laughs> the only thing I want hand blown from Dorn is me. Yeah. <laughs> Like, what happens in Dorn stays in Dorn, bruh. <laughs> uh, 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 what, what is it, a Dornish knot? I'll take one of those. So, uh, Is that when you do, like, a rusty venture, but, like, in, you make, like, the infinity symbol instead? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Um, so, with that being said, as I say most often when we are wrapping this up, um, there are a few things that have brought us to this point, and those are the journeys that we've taken with these characters throughout this process. And during this process, really up to this point, um, we've seen the family more or less stay stable. And it is at this moment when we get tremendous change from all the other characters. And Brock is the linchpin that has been holding all of that together. And by removing Brock, we're going to see massive changes, not just from Doc, not just from Hank, not just from Dean, but also from 21 in particular, And, you know, the element and hatred as well 
you know, this is what allows hatred to kind of step in the new role. Like this change, this moment right here is what sets up the rest of the series as we know it. And the fact that it is Brock's absence or presence that determines that tells you everything you need to know about the character of Brock Sam. You are not wrong. Um, I mean, really, like, Brock Samson, uh, in some weird way, is, like, the the heartbeat of the show, like, the connective tissue. Like, he might always play too cool for school, but he really is, like, you know, on Team Venture. Uh, yes, he is. You know, um, so, yeah, definitely, I, I think that's a pretty tight summation. Well, ladies and gentlemen... Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Conjectural Technologies Adventure Industries podcast. I've been your host, Professor Brock Savage. With, with me, as always, is my longtime companion, Beast Lamode, and we were joined this week by Vaude Villain. So from all of us here, thank you guys so much for joining us. And on behalf of all of us, to all of you out there fighting the good fight and working for change, go Go venture. venture. That was so awful. <laughs> You're only getting worse. I know. I know. <laughs>